The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves, this is what we talked about last week, likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live in the rest of his time in the flesh, the lusts of men, but to the will of God. And by the way, Peter's not saying that Christians that live in the will of God don't sin. He's saying Christians that have, are seeking to do the will of God uh, die to their sins, lay aside their sins. How many still struggle with sin like me? We all do. He's not talking about sinless perfection here. He's talking about the fact that you're not letting sin, as Paul said, reign in your mortal body. You're not allowing sin to call the shots. You're not allowing the flesh to call the shots, but you're embracing the will of God as Jesus did. Jesus embraced God's will and his call to suffer for us. And we too, as believers who follow in his steps, embrace his will and even his call to suffer uh, 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 for the cause of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 3, the Bible says, In time past our life, Uh, uh, may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles or the will of our own flesh or the will of man. And notice how we walked in lasciviousness. That's just like license to do however I want. That's literally what that word means. it's, it's, It's me believing I have the right to live my life. How many hear that anthem in the world? It's my body. It's my life. It's my will. It's, it's my choice. I can do whatever I want because my life belongs to me. And he says that's the anthem of the world, to walk in a licentious, a lascivious, a a licensed way, to live in the will of man, to live in my own desires in the time of my flesh to my own lusts, but rather now we're living to the will of God, verse 2, because in the past we lived in a lascivious way, we lived according to our own lusts, we lived in excess of wine or drunkenness, we lived in revelings, we lived in banquetings. In other words, we were just living according to our own lust. We're having a party, living our own way, desiring to to live life in a way that fulfills my flesh. And notice also what comes with that. It's abominable idolatries. Why? Because you can't live this way without committing idolatry. Because if you worship God, you don't live this way. But when you worship yourself, you worship this world, you worship uh, the gods of this world, that's how people who worship uh, the gods of this world live. Notice, they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot. Why? Because you used to run with them, and now you don't run with them. You're not doing what you used to do. You're not living how you used to live, and they think it's strange that you don't live that way. What happened to you? And notice, they even may speak evil of you because you don't live how you used to live. Maybe some of you, you came out of a life of sinfulness and you came to the Lord Jesus Christ and there's people that have noticed that you no longer live in that party life. You no longer live uh, for the lusts of your flesh. You're no longer going out every weekend to get drunk. You're no longer going out every weekend to live for yourself and to have the parties and, and to just fulfill the desires of your lust. You're not, you're not committing sexual immorality. You're not just uh, doing with your body as your body desires and pleases. The Bible says that idolatry, whose God is their what? Their own lust, their belly, their own desires. And so our God calls us out of this lifestyle, and people that are around us will think it's strange 
that we don't live like them. And notice why we're living this way. Verse 5, we're going to give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. So there is a judge that's going to judge us one day and how we live our lives. And we're living for his eyes, for his glory. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. How many are glad that he preached to us while we were dead in our trespasses and sins? We live like this. We were dead already, the Bible says, but he brought life to us and we came out of darkness into light. We came from death to life. And how many are glad that one day the gospel was preached to your dead self? The gospel was preached to you who were dead in your own desires and now you're alive spiritually and while you may still suffer in the flesh, and this is what Peter is highlighting, and while it may not make sense to them, they say, oh, Christians, uh, you're not free from suffering. We all are suffering, but yet we're alive in Jesus. We have a purpose for life. We have the presence of the Spirit of God and now there's a reason for our living that's beyond our belly, beyond our flesh, beyond our own will, beyond our own desire. And notice we live according, end of verse 6, to the God, to God in the Spirit. That's how we're living. We're not walking after the flesh, the Bible says, but we're walking after the what? After the Spirit. The Spirit's quickening us and, and making us alive. That Spirit uh, unites us uh, in fellowship with God and, and with each other. How many glad that we have fellowship one with another because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, has spiritually cleansed us from all of our sin. And while practically speaking, we're still in this flesh, uh, spiritually speaking, we're seated with Him in heavenly places. We're children of the Most High God. We're heirs and heirs, heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We're prophets, priests, and kings with Jesus, and we'll rule and reign with Him forever and ever and be in His presence. That's who we are in Jesus while we're living pilgrims in this broken society and broken world. But the end of all things is at hand. How many can feel that and sense that? The end is near. The end of all things is at hand. Peter even admonished the church even uh, thousands of years ago that the end was near to them, that it was, it was coming to a close. The world was coming to an end. The end is near. Uh, be therefore what? Sober and watch unto prayer and above all things have what? Fervent charity among yourselves as a body of Christ. Love each other. And he says... Charity, love, that kind of love, Christ-like love, what does it do? It covers the multitude of sins. And he says, use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Every Christian has received a gift from the Lord that they're to use to honor and glorify him. The gift of his spirit has enabled us to do things. Notice, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so he closes this thought with an amen, with an agreement to what the word of God says. And so as we consider this thought today, being stable in an unstable world, how many can acknowledge with me today that we live in a very unstable place? 
We live in a very unstable world. I, I think Jesus gave the best illustration of this. We live amongst the people who have built their lives on sand. They've built their lives on an unstable foundation. And what happens to them? When the wind blows, when the storms of life come, when the natural things of this world actually enter in, we live among them. Hey, the same storm that hits them hits us. But the foundation is what keeps us stable in the storm, and it's what keeps them from standing. They crumble in, in instability. And we can see uh, more and more that our society is crumbling around us. Uh, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Uh, is the question the psalmist asked. Well, we can continue to live on the foundations that God has given us, even if those around us have ceased from doing so. Even if they are not living on those foundations, even if they think it's foolishness to build on that foundations, uh, foundation. They believe Noah to be a fool when he built the ark. But Noah was not a fool. Noah was saved when the storm came because he did by faith what God told him to do. How many know this? What God tells us to do very rarely makes sense in the world's logic and understanding. As a matter of fact, as the text tells us, they look at our lives and they think it's strange that we're not living the way they are. And by the way, they'll think it's strange when we trust God and we have peace that passes understanding, that keeps our hearts and minds through Christ. They'll think it's strange that you're stable while everything's falling apart, while this world is against us, while we continue to suffer. And so God calls us to be stable and as he tells us in, in this text, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. So there's the will of man and there's the passions of the flesh. This is what he highlights in, in verses 2 and 3 and 4 as he talks about how we're living now. We've armed ourselves with the mind of God. We're laying aside the way that we used to live. And we're, we're not living according to the will of man or the will of the Gentiles, as he says in the text, and we're not living according to the passions of our flesh. It would be good for us to recognize today that some of the things that you're passionate about are just fleshly passions that you should lay aside. Are you with me today? Because the world is passionate about their lifestyle. How many know that passion is inspiring? How many have seen somebody that's passionate about the way that they're living lives? They speak passionately. They, they, they speak uh, as if it's the, the most exciting way to live. And as we think about how the world's living, boy, they're passionate about, and they'll fight for living according to their own will and living according to the passions of the flesh. And that's their desires, that's their passions. But God tells us to die to those desires as believers. He tells them to lay aside. Why? Because to follow Christ means to be done with our old ways. Listen, church, you can pray a prayer and say you put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but the Bible says that those that truly believe in Jesus are done with their old life. They're done with their old ways. It doesn't mean it's not a temptation anymore. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with our, our flesh and our lust. It just means that we're not going back to where we were. We're, we're not going to live according to the desires of our flesh. This body doesn't call the shots. 
How many know that your flesh will give you thousands of reasons to do its will, but you only need one reason to do God's, because it's right. I don't care how many reasons that your flesh gives you and how good you feel about it. I hear people say, well, I have peace about it. Well, I, I just feel that this is the right thing for me. If you're doing something contrary to the word of God, you're doing it according to your own will, mark it down, my flesh and your flesh will give you a thousand good reasons to do it, but you only need one reason to do the will of God, and that's because it's right. You know, that's what we should ask ourselves when those passions come in. Does this glorify God? Does this, does this show forth the glory of God and the fact that I've been called out of darkness into light? Or am I doing this because my flesh has been made uncomfortable and my flesh wants something different than what I have? How many know to live for God will cost you? It will cost you. You give up your life to get his life. Jesus said, nobody can come after me except he first take up his cross and follow me. What is that cross a picture of? Death to self. Uh, Paul said it, I'm crucified with Christ. I die daily. I no longer live in my flesh. The Bible says that they have crucified the flesh with its affections and with its desires, with its lusts. And so to follow Christ means to be done with our old ways. To follow Christ means a lifetime of following the will of God over the will of man. To follow Christ means a lifetime of following the will of God over the will of man. Uh, let, me, let me just present to you and I uh, what's easy to do. It's easy to say, I'm going to do the will of God and not do the will of man when we're talking externally. In a sense of like, oh, I see the world around me, it's evil. And I'm not going to partake in that evil. We, we have a way of like kind of having the Christian cruise ship here, you know. We only play the, our music. We only live our lives. We're, you know, we're kind of saved from the wrath to come. But how many know that God has called us to live in this present world godly, soberly, and righteously? And that's going to cost us because while we live in this world, there's going to come a period of time where you're going to want to do your own will. And God's, God tells us, you've got to lay aside your desires. You've got to lay aside your will and do the will of the Father. Some of you right now, there are practical decisions that you are making that you're not considering the will of God. You're not considering what is right. Well, this is convenient. Well, this is what I feel is best. Well, this is what makes me happy. Well, this is what makes me feel secure. But to do the will of God, he that does the will of God abides forever, the Bible says. The flesh profits nothing. How many know the flesh is insatiable? Have you ever done what your flesh wants? How many know that it's not long before your flesh comes demanding something else? Because it's insatiable. Once you do the flesh's desire, the flesh's will, boy, and you start living that way, uh, boy, it's just, I, I'll, I'll put a practical thing here. I'll, I'm preaching to the choir today. It's Sunday morning, you're here. How many know that the flesh doesn't always want to gather with the church on Sunday? That's why we don't make it a, a, a choice that the flesh makes. We do it because it's the will of God. How do we know? Because God tells us to gather with the church on Sunday. God tells us not to forsake gathering. God tells us to come together to consider each other. It's a decision that we make. It's a discipline that we live out because the flesh creeps in and gives us every reason not to do the will of God. That's a very basic thing, but there's a thousand other things in your life right now 
that you're going to have to apply the same disciplined life principle to. You say, I've got to do the will of God no matter what the desire is that I have. Your flesh wants to sin, wants to do its own will, and it will go kicking and screaming, and that's why it needs to be mortified, it needs to be crucified, it needs to be dead. How many know there's some forgiveness that should be happening in your life right now, but it's not happening because you're living according to the passions of your flesh? I'm hurt, I don't want to forgive, but God says forgive. He commands it. He doesn't say when you feel it. He says do it because it's what honors me, because it's my will, because it's even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. That's what you're supposed to do. The way that Jesus, are we living our lives or are we living his life? Who does, who does our life belong to? Us or him? Boy, that only becomes practically true when you get put between a decision that you want to make and one that's contrary, uh, 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 a decision you want to make contrary to the will of God and know what God's will says, and you say, I'm going to do my own will. Boy, we do it all the time, don't we? Every time we sin, we say, I do my will instead of God's will. It's never God's will for us to sin, is it? And by the way, whatever is not of faith is sin, the Bible tells us. It's not just the sins of commission, it's the sins of omission. Sometimes we're not doing what we should do. How many know that it is sometimes a sin to do nothing? It is sometimes a sin to say nothing. It is sometimes a sin to sit complacent and not do as God commands. Does God call us later in the text for every Christian to to serve, to use their gifts? You know, some of us, we're in sin, not because we're committing some gross sins of immorality. We're in sin because we're not serving the Lord. Not from our hearts the way that we're not surrendered to God the way that we should. And so there's this call of every Christian. And then there's this uh, command for us. As God says, he tells us, he, he reminds us why we do what we do. Because there's an impartial judge. Verse 5, we're going to give an account to him who's ready to judge, what? The quick and the dead. The living and the dead. Those that have been quickened and those that are still dead. Um, you know, one day... There's going to be judgment that comes both to those that are in Christ and those that are not. He's going to separate us from those that are lost. And there's a separate judgment for the believers. How many thankful that if you're in Jesus today, you're not going to be judged for your sins. Jesus was already judged for your sins. That's not an excuse to live in your sins or remain in your sins or to continue in sin. The grace may abound. God forbid that we who are dead to sin should live any longer therein. And so we're not living that old life anymore, but there's a judgment coming. And if you believe the end's near, and the judge who knows all is going to judge you one day, how do you think you're going to fare at the judgment seat of Christ? Have you submitted yourself and surrendered yourself? Are you actively doing the will of God right now in your marriage, in your family, at your job, within the local New Testament church? Are you actively living it out? You say, what are you you trying to guilt trip me? No, I'm trying to provoke you to love and the good works because the word of God is not just about encouragement, friend. It it gives us uh, reproof and correction and instruction and how we're to live our Christian lives. And how many know we need to be reproved? We need to be corrected. We need to be instructed. How many glad that God didn't leave us without instructions? 
He gave us instructions so that it's not a question mark on how we're to live our lives. But there's this judge that's coming, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter argues that though Christians die, they're going to be judged in the flesh the way people are. They still live in the spirit the way that God does. And while it doesn't make sense to this world why we live the way that we do, when we live for his eyes alone, it makes perfect sense. You know, we need to continually preach this good news to ourselves. Church, there is not a time in your life where you'll outgrow the gospel. As a matter of fact, the gospel is to be what your life flows from. You're supposed to live like the gospel says. You want to know how to fix your marital problems? Apply the gospel. (laughs) How many know that God didn't wait until you were forgivable to forgive you? When you were in your sins, when you were his enemy, he still forgave you. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Apply the gospel. Anybody who you're making earn forgiveness and grace, you're you're preaching another gospel, a legalistic gospel. Nobody should have to earn forgiveness and grace because we didn't earn forgiveness and grace. Preach the gospel to yourself and then apply the gospel to your life. Treat people the way Jesus treats you. Love people the way Jesus loves you. Start in your own home. Start with your own children. Start with your own family. The failures that we're having within the church today is we're failing to preach the gospel to ourselves and then preach the gospel in our homes, and it's why we're not preaching the gospel to the world, church. If you won't preach the gospel in your own marriage, in your own home, you'll never preach the gospel to those around. And by the way, your gospel message will have no effect because your life will cancel it out because you're not living of the gospel. We must preach the gospel to ourselves. We must rehearse it in our own ears. And then we're what? Living with the end in view. He says in the text to us, but the end of all things is what? It's at hand. What does that mean? It's coming soon. Do you believe that Jesus is coming soon? Are you living like you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is coming soon? And are you living like you believe that? What if you knew that the world would end in 24 hours? How would you spend your last day on earth? With who would you spend it? Would it be a day of hopeful expectation or of hopeless despondency or somewhere in between? You know, we don't know when the last day, the day when Jesus is revealed, will bring both salvation and judgment, verse 5. But the Bible warns to us to be ready because it will come like the flood in the days of Noah. And it encourages us to wait expectantly because we know that as God saved Noah through the flood, those who are in Christ will be saved through his judgment. And Peter reminds the Christians here in Asia Minor that the end of all things is at hand in verse 7. The end is when our living hope will be realized and when we'll receive our imperishable inheritance. So we can await the end with eager expectation. The Bible says that it is a great hope to us. It's an expectation that we have. So we can await that with that expectation, knowing that it's going to come to pass. Living with the end in view is not a call to radical Christianity. It is a call to normal Christianity. So many people think that if you're living, believing that Jesus could come back at any moment, that makes you a radical. No, it makes you normal. It makes you a Christian. 
That's not radical Christianity. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that those that don't love his appearing are not Christians at all. You know what it means to love the appearing of the Lord? It means to want it to come at any moment, to be ready for it, to live every moment for it. Are you loving his appearing? Are you loving his coming? Are you waiting expectantly for it to take place? That's not radical Christianity. It's normal Christianity. It's a call to live our lives together as a church in a way that displays the character of God to an unstable, hostile world and that remembers that we have placed our hope in a certain, sure foundation, a glorious future, so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So what does that look like? Well, I believe that it looks like being self-controlled and sober-minded because that's what the text says. In verse 7, he says, because the end of all things is his hand, we're to be what? Sober and watch unto prayer. To be self-controlled, to be sober-minded. A fruit of God's Spirit, by the way, is self-control. And God says that all those who have God's Spirit are sober-minded. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. By the way, that he's speaking both literally and spiritually. You're not to be drunk with wine. Don't be under the influence of things that numb your mind to this world, numb your mind to your calling, but rather be sober-minded, not just not drunk on some kind of substance, but rather not drunk on the things of this world. And under control by who? God's Spirit. Because he that lives to the flesh shall of the flesh reap what he sows. But he that lives to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Be not deceived, church. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. What you put down in the ground is going to come up in the harvest. Church, what you're sowing right now is going to come up one day in harvest. How do I know that this is a bad way for us to live our Christian lives? To live six days sowing seeds of unrighteousness and coming in on Sunday and praying for crop failure. Oh God, help what I'm doing every day not to grow. And God says, don't be a fool. I'll not be mocked. You can't come into my house and pray that all the seeds you're sowing throughout the week don't grow. As a matter of fact, what you're sowing in your life is going to grow. And you're going to reap the consequences of that. Now that's both challenging and convicting, but also encouraging. Because when we sow seeds of faith and righteousness and holiness, that's what comes back to us. And by the way, how many know the harvest always comes in more abundance than the sowing? It comes in a different season, though, doesn't it? You don't see the harvest right away. Sometimes we're like Eve and Adam in the garden. We, eat the, we, eat the, uh, we disobey God, and well, I didn't die. The devil said I wouldn't die. Look, I didn't die. And you know what? They did die, didn't they? It just didn't happen in the same season and what they thought. You know, what we do down the road bears consequences. How many wish that you could cancel some of the consequences of bad, sinful decisions that you've made in life. But how many are thankful that God is merciful and gracious? Boy, I've had times in my life where I just deserved the consequences, and God was merciful to me. He didn't give me what I deserved. I'm thankful that, you know, it's of the Lord's mercy that I'm not consumed. 
You know why? Because every single one of us should die right now for our sins. But because his compassions fail not, and great is his faithfulness, boy, he's just a loving father, isn't he? Merciful and long-suffering. And then he calls us, he says, be, have the same mind. Remember he said in verse 1, arm yourself with the same mind? You know, this is the mind of Christ, isn't it? Self-controlled, sober-minded. You ever see Jesus lash back at those that lashed at him? Never happened. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he threatened, he, he, when he suffered, he threatened not, but rather gave place to them. As a matter of fact, he loved them. He did good to them. The despiteful, he kissed those that hated him, that wanted to kill them. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Sometimes we, we divorce ourselves in the Christian life from that. We say, well, that's Jesus. He's perfect. I'm not. No, no. God, if you believe, you know, we're praying for God to do miracles. Oh, God, heal us. Oh, God, meet my need. Oh, God, help me with this. And then we think that God can't empower us to live the way Jesus did. God told us to live in that way, to be sober-minded. In other words, you know what he's literally saying? Keep your head. Keep your head. Rudyard Kipling wrote a famous poem, and it begins, If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. Keep your head. That's what he's saying. Be sober-minded. Be stable in a crazy world. Be stable in an unstable world. How many know that some Christians are being crazy? Some people who name the name of Christ, boy, they're just acting in, in insane ways, unbiblical ways, spiritualizing that insanity, spiritualizing the things that they do that are crazy and saying, well, you know, I'm just living for Jesus and just hoping. No, you're supposed to live in a stable way, in an obedient way, in a, in a decent way, in an orderly way, in a way that honors God. You know, this may seem like radical advice, but it's, it's certainly necessary. When it comes to the end times, too many Christians have been anything but clear-minded. Boy, how many see it? Whenever something happens, it looks like the stage, the end of the world is coming. Christians have been obsessed with the end. They're obsessed with revelation, obsessed with end times. With every new conflict in the Middle East comes a new slew of end-time books, videos, television specials. Occasionally, a pastor or religious leader sets a date for the end of the world and invariably gains a following. Christians drunk with the idea of the coming end may prepare for it by selling their possessions by withdrawing from society and even gathering together in a designated location in order to wait for that day. But Peter is clear here, isn't he? Don't lose your head. Think clearly. Don't set dates. Be ready. Don't withdraw from society. Proclaim God's excellencies. Don't panic. Why? Because we don't need to panic. We got no reason to fear. We don't have to... We don't have to have build bomb shelters. We don't have to protect ourselves uh, from the doom of society. Listen, we're in the midst of a God-forsaken world, but God is with us and will never leave us or forsake us, and he will be with us to the end. That's what he said. And by the way, he's coming back. And we cannot afford to lose our minds, Christians. Be sober-minded. The world's full of crazy Christians, people that proclaim that they believe on Jesus, but they act in insane ways. 
theologically and practically, saying things that the Bible doesn't say, purporting things that the Bible... Listen, what the church should be as the end comes near is more stable, more peaceful, you know, more sober-minded, more restful, less fearful. How many see the fear-mongering in our world? Church, we're not afraid. We're not afraid what men can do to us. We're not afraid of what's in this world. We're not living for this world. Our life is not tied to the end of this world. Our life is tied to Jesus Christ's life who will never end. And if you're in Christ today, you're as good as in the ark, in the storm. You're safe from the wrath. The death angel will pass over you and you will be safe with Jesus. You have no reason to live like a a, a scaredy cat person in the world that we live in, afraid of your own shadow, afraid of everything that's out there and thinking, we can't live in this world and we've got to run and hide. Oh, listen, as the world comes to a close, may the church be the triumphant army of the living God who the gates of hell will not prevail against. We're not afraid. We're not afraid. Not afraid of fear. We're not afraid of what can happen to us. Listen, if they can threaten you with something, if they can, if they can take something, you say, oh, I, I can't live this Christian life because of what the world can take away from me. What can they take from you? They can only take your life. That's the worst thing that could happen to you, and to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Boy, I was reminded of that this week as, as my friend from the teenage years uh, who's living over in the Middle East was shot and killed. You know, and, and the thing that he said, he said, may it be so, God, that I would die among these people that I love for the gospel's sake. Wow. To love people who the world hates for the gospel's sake. You know, that whole country right now, thousands of people mourning his death. And you know what they said? He loved our people. He loved our country. And he was somebody that made a difference in our lives. Boy, that's who we're supposed to be, church. Oh, you may not build a big church with thousands of people. May may not, if I said his name, you probably wouldn't know who he was. But as he was murdered this week, for the cause of Jesus Christ, boy, he said, this is my purpose. This is my reason. This is my hope. What can they do to me? What's stopping you from living that way in this world? You live in comfort. You live with more than you have or need or deserve. And yet, when we say, oh, we have needs, oh, let me just, oh, let me be careful because we're afraid of the bills. We're afraid of not having this. We're We're afraid of living without that. We can't even do without the amenities of life to sacrifice for the gospel's sake well, there's people giving their lives for the gospel's sake in our world today. And I'm speaking with passion on behalf of his family today because they gave their lives for the gospel. What are we doing as we see the end approaching? Living for ourselves and our own desires and our own will. Being stingy. Being selfish. And living in fear. Huddling in our homes. Panicked with every onset of every fearful thing that's in this world. We flip on the news, all the fear-mongering all around us. Listen, you, you take a risk every time you go outside your door, but it's worth it to risk for the kingdom of God, your very life. Because, listen, it's appointed unto you once to die. 
and a judgment's coming. You can die just as easily in your rocking chair in your home or you can die for the cause of Christ. Boy, it'd be better for us to live our lives for Jesus than to keep our lives for ourselves. What does he say? Don't lose your heads. And he says, increase in prayer. As a matter of fact, he gives us a sense of uh, uh, urgency in our prayers as he says, be sober-minded and watch unto prayer. How many remember when Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray? What'd they do? Sit and sleep. How many know that God is calling us to be his disciples and he's saying to us, watch and pray, and some of us are sitting, slumbering, sleeping, drunk on the passions of this world, making excuses. Listen, either you're obeying God or you're making excuses. We should repent today of our complacency and give our lives today in complete surrender. Every believer under the sound of my voice today should be fully surrendered to the cause of Christ and to Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. No excuses. Listen, how many like me just make excuses? I do it. You do it. We're all making excuses. We're all making caveats for why we're not doing. I, I like what Jonathan had not called, he said. No, no, no not listening. Because you've been called, you're just not heeding the call. You're not listening to the call. There's so many Christians today with their fingers in their ears saying God's not speaking to them. You know, they, they can sit through a message like this and say, oh, I didn't get anything out of the message. Well, you got your fingers in your ears. You're not ready to receive what God has to say. I'm, I'm not saying do what I say. I'm saying do what he says. It doesn't matter what my opinion is. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. But Peter's speaking to a group of Christians who are going to give their lives for the cause of Christ. And I understand his passion, don't you? Because Peter, he gave his life for the cause of Christ. Are we greater than he? I like what the old hymn writer said, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? How in the world can I expect my life to be good as I see it to be good while others have paid the ultimate price for what I have? Well, that's a problem in our country, isn't it? We're happy to live off someone else's sacrifice. We're just not happy to sacrifice what we have for someone else. Stingy, selfish. It's the world that we live in. We're not careful. It's creeped into the church in such a way that we're powerless because we're trusted in the stuff in our pockets instead of the Lord above us. As we follow in his footsteps, Jesus teaches us how to express our anxieties in hopeful prayer. He says, increase in prayer. He had taught us how to pray in light of the end. Because the end is at hand, we need to what? Urgently pray for God's name to be made famous or hallowed. And for God's will to be accomplished on earth. Isn't that how he taught the disciples to pray? Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What they pray? Not what we pray for sometimes. God, just give us our daily bread. You know, God says, trust God for what you need for today. And don't boast for what you need for tomorrow. I'm not saying don't be prepared for life or don't be a good steward, but some of us, we make stewardship as an excuse for why we don't give. You know, I'm just trying to be a good steward. No, you're just being selfish. How many believe that God can meet your need? 
And how many know that you don't even know if there's going to be a tomorrow? And if Jesus shows up tomorrow, can you represent what he's given you? Are you the, you the servant that's unprofitable that buried your talent? He says, his will be accomplished on earth. We need to pray that God's kingdom would come in individuals' lives as they place themselves under the king's rule and before his kingdom comes into all its fullness. We have an awareness of the nearness of the end that, that by the way, how many know that if we were more aware of how close the end was, how many believe you'd pray more? You'd pray more. What does he say about the church as we're aware of the end? And so much the more as you see the day approaching. More what? Fellowship, more worship, more preaching, more gathering, more praying, more loving, more serving, more provoking to love and the good works. My fear is that there's going to be so many other countries that need to come and bring the gospel to America because we've been without it for so long. You know, there are other countries sending missionaries to us now. Because we've swallowed hook, line, and sinker the prosperity gospel, and we've traded it for the true gospel of Jesus Christ. We've exported that false gospel to the world instead of the true gospel that we've been entrusted with. And as a result, we're living in those consequences today. We need to pray that our Heavenly Father will give us what we need until Jesus returns. And then he tells us we need to what? Love each other. Well, that seems like a shift, doesn't it? All these things that he's saying, he says, verse 8, and above all things have what? Fervent charity. I like the description here. Charity meaning the love of God, not your love, not the love of your passions, not the love that you have in this world, but charity is God's love. Charity is uh, 1 Corinthians 13 love, that thinks no evil, that rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, that bears all things, that believes all things, that hopes all things, that endures all things, that charity suffers long. Remember the text is about suffering, but it's kind. It doesn't envy. It's not full of pride. It doesn't act in a way that it shouldn't. It behaves itself in a way that honors God. And he says, above all, keep loving each other earnestly because that kind of love will cover a multitude of sins. How many need God's love to cover your sins today? How many understand where sin has abounded in your life, God's grace and love has much more abounded? Throughout this letter, Peter emphasizes love as that which should characterize the church. As Jesus said, that would be the marker of his followers, that we would love each other. How many would be honest today and said, I need to love my brothers and sisters and the family here more? I need to stop being so selfish. Sometimes if we're not careful, we come into the gathering of the church and we're only looking to be ministered to instead of to be ministered, instead of serving somebody else. You could look around this room today and I guarantee you there are people that are bearing burdens that you are not aware of. And it's not a competition, but you're not the only one suffering. And our sufferings are just light afflictions that are here for a moment and then they're gone. And we're supposed to glory in our infirmities. And it's not supposed to be an excuse for us not to serve God. That's what the devil uses in Christians' lives to stop them. But brotherly love and harmony provides evidence to the unbelieving world of Jesus' incarnation and of our discipleship. 
We could explain Christian love in a variety of ways and apply it to a variety of circumstances today, but Peter chooses one in particular. He says when you love each other, you're going to overlook each other's sins. That's not to say that we don't take sin seriously as a church, that we don't call people to repentance and we don't discipline people when they do wrong. That's not to say that we don't take sin seriously, but Peter spent much time in this letter urging us to display the holiness of our God. If the church simply ignored sin, we would not be providing a faithful testimony to the unbelieving world. So what is Peter saying here? Well, it helps us to realize that he's referring to Proverbs 10 and verse 12 in this text. And he says, in that text, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of sins. That's what Proverbs 10, 12 says. What's he concerned about? Well, potential for divisive conflict amongst other believers. You know why there's a lot of churches not living for God today? Because they're so busy fighting amongst themselves. And by the way, that goes from churches to churches. Churches, you know, not every church, how many know that every family is different? Every family does everything the same. If I was to go to your house and have dinner, you'd have different traditions and practices and approaches to having a family dinner and fellowship than I would in my home. Sometimes we're so judgmental about our differences that are so minimal, by the way, we're still meeting, we're still gathering, we're still fellowshipping, we're still around the truth, but yet we're picking at each other for the way that we sit around the table. How many of you go into some cultures that you take your shoes off before you go in the house? How many know some people sit on the floor and some people sit around tables and some people have no tables to sit around? Every family's different, but there's so many Christian sects today that are busy fighting amongst themselves. We have no time for this, church. We cannot give our attention to it, and we cannot allow it to divide us. You know, you can go to one church and you go to another, and you might find differences in the way they worship, but hopefully the message of the gospel is the same. The doctrines of God are being held to. The word of God is being magnified above all things. I'm not saying there's not heresy in the world that we need to uh, remove ourselves from, but I'm talking about, by and large, uh, what we're seeing in Christendom today is too many Christians who believe the same things fighting with each other over stupid stuff, and they're not accomplishing the will of God. How much more could be accomplished if we would just love each other with fervent charity? How many of that's a challenge? Because the love with fervent charity means to not love yourself, but to love somebody else. Hatred stirs up strife. Love covers a multitude of sins. You know what that means? We don't go around looking for faults in others, and we also don't go around magnifying the faults we see in other, other believers. Can I help some of you today? Stop worrying about sins in other families, in other churches, in other places in this world, and making that your focus, because the reason why you won't do what you should do right here and now is because you're too focused on people that you have no jurisdiction over. And boy, that just, just causes bitterness and divisiveness. People just criticize each other and, and causing all kinds of problems within uh, the, the realm of Christians. Why? Because we're sitting at camp when we should be at the front lines of the battle arguing, fighting. You're not loving if you're trying to expose somebody. You're not loving if you're trying to dig up somebody's faults. How many would like if somebody digged up your faults today? Would anybody like to 
have your, your thoughts put on the screen today? Remember what the Pharisees were like? Oh, we might be not born of fornication. Oh, oh we've, never, we've never committed adultery. Oh, we've never murdered anybody. That's the Christians today. And Jesus looked at them and he said, you hypocrite. You committed adultery in your heart. You've done what they've done outwardly, but you've done it in your head and you've done it in your heart, and you think you're better. Boy, none of us are better than any of us. And by the way, how many know that God judges righteously? He has, a, he has an ability by His Spirit to take care of problems that exist in the world. Stop being a sower of discord among the brethren. You know, there's people that are out there, you know, and, and I think every pastor is a little afraid for this world that we live in where, you know, the messages are being put out on the Internet. You know, people, people can, can look in and, and seek to criticize. And, and by the way, I'll just be... be perfectly transparent and honest. I'm a, I'm a sinner saved by God's grace, and, and I'm not sinlessly perfect. There's things that I've done that I'm not, I'm, not, uh, I, I, I'm not happy about, I'm not proud of, but I'm thankful that God's love has covered my sin. I'm thankful that where I should be disqualified, God has qualified me. I'm living with a sober mind because of that, and you know what, I, I again... I tremble even talking about it because I know just one single selfish sin could cause me to fall and be a castaway, just like Peter, Paul said. What did Paul say? He said, I know who I am. I know what's in my flesh. I know there's nothing good here. I know when I preach to others, I myself could be a castaway. Oh, God, help us not to fail and fall and help us to love each other with fervent love. How about we spend more time thinking the best of each other? instead of assuming the worst of one another? How about we always stand ready to forgive each other? You know, the church is, is a bad place when we can't let people who've sinned in this place to be forgiven. Boys, spiritual people seek to restore and forgive. The end is near. By the way, you're going to live with your brothers and sisters for all eternity, and there's not going to be levels where certain groups of churches live and exist apart from you. You know, we're going to live together for all eternity. You say, well, then they'll be perfect like I am. <laughs> and I won't have to put up with all their flaws. And How many thankful for all the things that Christ puts up with in your life? And he still uses you, isn't it? Anybody find anybody in the Bible that God used that was a really good guy, really good girl? Boy, he used some really bad people, didn't he? Really, really horrible people. I mean, look at their lives and the things that they did. Before God came in and some after God came in their lives. But yet God still covered them. And he loved them. And he forgave them. How can God tell us just Lot? Just Lot. How many, when you think of Lot, you think of a just man? Boy, Lot did some bad stuff, didn't he? But the Bible says he's one of our brothers in Christ. He's justified. Why? Because faith is what justifies us, not our works. And then he tells us how, what that love looks like. I'm out of time. This is becoming a habit. I'm sorry. I'll try to break my habits. God, use it even though I have bad habits. Love is hospitable. What does he say in the text? Show hospitality to each other. You know why? 
because we think we love like we want to love, and God says, no, this is what my love looks like. How many know that the problem in Western culture is we see our homes as castles we hide in? You know, we go in, we draw the drawbridge up, we turn the ring camera on and security, and we make sure nobody's on our property at any time. God forbid anybody should come and need help from us. They'll get shot or the dog will eat them or something else will happen. We're so afraid. We live in one of the safest countries in the world, and we live like we're in the middle of the battle zone, some of us. It's sad, isn't it? And God's speaking to us in this culture, and he's saying, be hospitable. Have people in your home. Host people. Serve them meals. Let them sit at your table. Be open with the family of God. When's the last time you had another uh, believer... When's the last time you invited another family in the church to come over and have dinner at your house? Well, that's an old thing. No, that's a hospitable thing. Some of you, you could use the fellowship. You could use the opportunity to serve somebody. Why is it that now in churches, pastors got to ask people to host people? Why don't you just host people because you love them? Why don't you just be hospitable? You know, instead of fighting for who gets the last cup of coffee down here, why don't we just be serving each other? Loving each other. You know, we're not fighting over seats and we're not fighting over parking spots and we're not fighting over who has what title in, in, within the church. Boy, we're just loving each other. We're supposed to be hospitable to each other because true love is hospitable. Boy, I'm convicted about that. You need to come over my house. I need to come over your house. Some of you are scared to have me in your house. I know. You think I already know everything about you and then, boy, boy, now I'm going to see everything. I'll stay out of your sock drawer. You stay out of mine. But but I'm saying hospitality is something that should be part of our culture as believers, even though it's against the culture that we live in today. It's not weird to fellowship. It's a Christian thing to do. And then love is serving, isn't it? He tells them to take the gifts that, by the way, he says... Lest any of us think we don't have gifts, he says, every single one of you has gifts. Well, I'm not the one that speaks as the oracles of God. I'm not the one that preaches from the pulpit. But you're gifted. You are gifted. You are loved. You are empowered by God's Spirit. And if you are loving as God loves, you will serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Boy, we need to serve each other, don't we? You know, that's what the Lord's table is a good representation of. I know it's probably bad the way that we observe it because it's our traditions just to kind of sit solely and eat and drink kind of like where nobody's watching us, but they used to sit around the table and serve each other. You know, in Corinth, what they did wrong? They just cared about what they ate and drank, and they didn't care about their brothers and sisters. We need to stop being selfish, and we need to start serving God. How many of you today, you can say, I need to stop saying, I can't really find a place. Nobody's really asked me. I'm not really sure where I should serve. Or how about this, not having some caveat of where you can serve and where you can't serve. How many of you know how to push a broom? You can serve God in his house. You know, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than not be in the house of God. Some of us, we have, oh, this is you know, my spiritual gift is being seen by people. Yeah. 
You know, true ministry, true ministry happens in the unseen places. You know, I've learned to understand that more and more. Yeah, this is about 2% of the ministry that God's given me to do, and most of it you don't ever see. Most of it nobody sees, and nobody knows about. But you know what? I'm not living for your eyes, and you're not living for mine. I'm living for His. And God sees. You know what I'm reminded of? My labor's not in vain in the Lord. And there's no small service in the kingdom of God. If you want to be greatest in the kingdom of God, be a servant. And follow in Jesus' footsteps because he was a servant of all. God, help it to be so in our lives. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.